Steve and Kevin analyze the mid-May vintage metagame on episode 53 of So Many Insane Plays. Welcome to episode 53 of So Many Insane Plays, our mid-May 2016 vintage metagame update, where we take our first look at the post-Lodestone Golem restriction metagame with new decks, trends, and more data than you can shake a Feldin's cane at. I'm Kevin Crone with Stephen Menendian. <laughs> Hi, everyone. If you have any comments or questions, you can tweet us at Many Insane Plays, email us at so many insane plays podcast at gmail.com, or leave feedback on Eternal Central, MTGCast, or TheManadrain.com. Or Twitter. Good point. We have multiple announcements this episode. Steve, you've got some old school articles that are recently posted, yes? Oh, they're great fun. I uh, <laughs> was able to connect with Brian Weissman, and he gave me his latest version of the deck for old school magic. So oh, it's, it's so cool. <laughs> he took a, a photo of it, just, you know, the old school style is you take photos of your decks instead of typing out the list. <laughs> so it's sweet. I have the actual deck by Brian Weissman, 2016. I, it's got that wicked Shivan Dragon in it this time. Nice. Yeah. Shiv and Dragon, I heard it did pretty well in some other tournaments recently. <laughs> oh, yeah? Someone said it was in one of the winning decks in GP New York. Nice. I didn't heard that. So people should definitely check out my uh, Zoo article and History of the Deck. Both The History of the Deck article like 10K words. Yeah. But if you want something a little shorter, it's like 4K, uh, the Zoo article. You, I think you read the deck article. What do you think? Yeah, cover to cover. It was it was intense. I really liked it. I mean, you did a, just a, an crazy job. I had I was around for some of the updates that happened as they happened, you know, on the internet and the dojo and other things during those times. But yeah. I just did not appreciate the full history of Weissman and that deck's yeah. evolution, how it responded to different things in the metagame. This is really amazing. Yeah, it's kind of like a almost the arc or progression of the format itself. Like yeah. you see all the changes, like like he tweaked his deck or actually rebuilt it to, to, to combat Necropotence and then and, rebuilt it again. Yeah. Every emergent menace. Probably the most interesting thing for me, besides just how interesting I love, you know, I love type one and history of the format, but I really don't think I appreciated Weissman's accomplishments beyond the deck and outside of type one. I mean, the man has a pretty sick pro tour resume for the late nineties. I mean, he had like, I don't remember all the details, but he had, I think it was something like eight or nine top 32 finishes, like money finishes in the Pro Tour yeah. worlds, like between 95 and like 99. Uh, he probably has around 100 Pro Points, maybe a little bit less, but way more than I expected. Like yeah. I kind of him off as someone who was like, kind of like me, you know, like a format specialist. And in fact, he's a very accomplished magician. Yeah, I, I agree. I did not appreciate that about him either. One of my favorite things about that you highlighted in the article is his position on mind twist specifically. He <laughs> he was vehement about about how powerful and format defining that card was. It's true. That was one of the most interesting things I think I put in there. That just so folks they can read the article, but he actually threatened to boycott magic at one point if they right. didn't ban mind twist. <laughs> And, you know, Brian Weissman has done many things. He's coined terms. He's defined terms. He's been a pioneer. But he's really been a pioneer in all areas of magic, including the Hyperbole. the internet <laughs> agitator. <laughs> That's funny. 
the DCI uh, advocate, whatever, you know, so yeah, he certainly has, has done that as well. Yeah, that, I really enjoyed that article. I encourage our audience to, because it's, it's pretty relevant to the old school magicians and vintage magicians, but also just historic, from a historical perspective, uh, all, you know, a lot of magic uh, theory and theory crafting of today's age is born out of that progression. Yeah, I definitely tried to make that point at the end. I mean, it's interesting when Mark Lanegra won the Midget Championship, you could definitely see the hint of the Weissman school in his deck. But yeah. I think the, the strongest kind of like disciple, if you will, of the Weissman school has got to be Brian Kelly. I mean, Brian Kelly is so strong in that school and he's revived it in such an interesting way. I mean, his way of designing decks is couldn't be more Weissman-esque. I mean, these kind of big mana bases, these like this like almost antipathy to force of will because of the card disadvantage. Yeah. And this incredible centrality around cards like Jace and Dak, even no matter how fast the format is, he just plays around these things in these this kind of like almost impossible to deal with um, sort of soft strategy and silver bullets in the board. Mm-hmm. And like I said, big mana. And and of course, one of Brian Kelly's big cards is Sylvan Library, which if Brian Weissman hadn't been playing with like, you know, tons of City of Brass, it's a total Brian Weissman card. Yeah, yeah, agreed. Well, we got to move on because there's another big announcement. Since our last episode, we finally heard the details about Eternal Weekend 2016. Now, I would imagine that most of our audience already knows this, but by way of update, it will take place on the weekend of October 27 through 30 this year. That's Halloween weekend. So that's fun times. But one of the biggest news is the location change. The event is now taking place in Columbus, Ohio which is hometown territory for you, Steve. What, how does that make you feel? Oh, my God, I can't wait. I, <laughs> I couldn't believe it. It was like Christmas. It was just, <laughs> just an unexpected gift. I, yeah. get to go, I get to go visit my mom. You know, I'll be, I'll be, you know, get to go the restaurants I don't get, haven't been able to visit for forever, all those good food that I'm missing. Not, mm-hmm. not to say there isn't great food in the Bay Area, but, you know, there's some things that there, you don't get in California. Like, there's no Bob Evans in California. Not, <laughs> there's no White Castle in California. <laughs> yep. food, definitely, you know, comfort food. You picked some doozies there. <laughs> <laughs> I'm fine. Well, I am very grateful about the fact that I'll be able to drive there, and I know many of my regional friends are as, as well and a, a large percentage of the country is within driving distance of columbus so it'll be interesting to see how that impacts attendance but the schedule is also very interesting so besides the date and the location the schedule is a big shift the event is formally running friday saturday sunday and there will almost certainly be eternal central's old school event on thursday so make note but the real key is that the vintage Swiss rounds will happen on Friday. The legacy Swiss rounds will happen on Saturday, and then both top eights will take place on Sunday. Do you know whether they're going to be simultaneous or sequence? Um, I would assume not. I saw some conversation on Twitter. I think it was Randy Bueller uh, with some other folks. And I think the idea was that for, to maximize coverage, they're going to spread them out. Well, so also, if you make stream. top eight and oh, you want to be able to compete. <laughs> well, absolutely. <laughs> too. So I, I would imagine, I don't know this for certain, but I would imagine, and based on everything I've heard, that they will be spread out such that the coverage will last all day for those. You know, I think, th- I mean, I, it's not an unprecedented tournament organization, right? Pro Tours and Invitationals and GPs have been structured this way for ages. Sure. But it's a pretty big break for us vintage players, right? Oh, it's a huge break. I mean, the implications are kind of mind-boggling. I mean, the fact that you can like go through this like grueling Swiss, yeah. then like take a day off, 
relax, break, test, prep, like study, and then go into this kind of like dead-eyed top eight. Yeah. It's kind of... <laughs> kind of unreal i i think it's awesome and i i, I do think the type the top eight will be of a slightly higher caliber I, of play because I of it could not agree more i think yeah. it's going to be an elevated event as a result yeah i'm very excited i would really i mean i, I always want to make top eight in this event yeah but i would really enjoy to make it this year just because of this structure alone yeah it's super enticing. Yeah. You know, there's been a lot of brouhaha around the, the move. But to be honest, like you were saying earlier, championships often move. I mean, mm-hmm. the World Championship of Magic is never the same place. Here mm-hmm. At least so far as I know. <laughs> and, and Gen Con used to even move. I mean, Gen Con, when Magic, when Origins, Origins kind of had a preview, in, in, sorry, Magic had a preview in Origins in 1993. And then it actually officially debuted at Gen Con in 1993. And those Gen Cons weren't indie Gen Con. I think that yeah. was like Milwaukee or that something. That was Milwaukee, yeah. Columbus, though, had as origins for years. So it's kind of a historically significant site for magic. Yeah. Um, so I think it's kind of like a homecoming. You know, I, I, don't get me wrong. I love Philadelphia. There's a lot to like about Philadelphia. There's a lot. It's a great city. There's a lot to see, a lot to do. Mm-hmm. And I certainly tried to make the most of it. But uh, if I had to pick a place in the world that it would be, <laughs> you know, if it wasn't where I live in the Bay Area, it would be Columbus, Ohio. Yeah. <laughs> That's a good point. I, I agree with everything you said. I really enjoyed the Philadelphia experience, the city, the setting, the the, you know, the convention, the, everything about it was great. And I would not complain about going back out there again. I was right. expecting to, in fact, yeah, this year. Just, that is funny. Uh, but Columbus, you're right. Columbus is a little bit historically significant and uh, just a great location for a great large swath of the central U.S. So you think about the, the Grand Prix, all the Grand Prix that I can think of, like the Eternal Grand Prix, the Legacy Grand Prix in Columbus have always had massive turnouts. Yeah. So, you know, Midwest has, has historically been, you know, frankly, Indianapolis was the vintage championship for like 10 years. Yeah. So there's nothing wrong with, with taking it back into the Midwest. <laughs> and Columbus is no no offense to Indi- Indianans here, but 10 times better than Indianapolis. <laughs> <laughs> No, well, you know it. <laughs> well, I, I'm a larger fan of the city of Columbus, but that's primarily because I lived there for a while, and uh, <laughs> and where we met. So you know, it has some some significance in that sense to me personally. Uh, I I will point out though, there are a number of things factors about this decision impacting that will impact attendance one way or the other right the date is halloween weekend so that's one thing it's a holiday now it's a minor holiday in all grand scheme of things but it's a holiday nonetheless the whole friday event for vintage will definitely be an impact there's people who won't be able to get off work simply and won't be able to Schedule the time for a whole three-day weekend if they're planning the top eight, right? Is trick-or-treating then? Uh, There will probably be trick-or-treating on that Friday in certain neighborhoods in Columbus. Uh, I have have to pause, Kevin. Hold on a second. Kevin's calling me. Okay. I'm starting mine as well. So these factors of date and location will, I think, push the attendance, you know, push and pull the attendance in different directions. Uh, The East Coast, obviously, is a big draw for a lot of East Coast players, driving distance, train distance, that kind of thing. Uh, but the Midwest is, you know, X, I don't know what the statistic is, but it's X number right. of hours from some right. large percentage it, of the country via drive. So uh, it, one would think that you get there by train, those two things could cancel each other out. Maybe. <laughs> <Now>. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> or horse-drawn carriage but, if you're coming from, but, you know, from Columbus, eastern Ohio. So people know um, Columbus is actually, I think, the 15th largest city in the country. It's not small. And it has a huge amount of Fortune 100, yeah. Fortune 500 companies, mostly insurance. Yeah, and it's the convention nice. center is... Is that swanky. Is it's really nice. Great. You know, it's a nice big convention center. We'll encourage you to go listen to 
the serious team serious podcast because they'll, they'll tell you where to even go but there there are like you know a number of really really good restaurants in the area in the short north area there uh certainly there's going to be the the market yeah the, the full name of that marketplace but it's not it's not like the philadelphia market but it's it's big enough yeah. to give you plenty of food options it's right across the street basically from the convention center and then there are lots of kind of like higher end places yeah. in the short north and then if you really want to be uh kind of you know baller about it you can go to thurman's which is one, <laughs> one of our favorite places to go after playing magic but that's all right all right yeah. we don't want to eat too much of team serious as lunch here i mean you got at least the conversation <laughs> there. for their experts <laughs> But for those, I, I'm glad you pointed out the market, though, because for those of you who really enjoyed that market in Philadelphia, which is an amazingly great market, there is a similar market that's right across the street in Columbus. Now, it's smaller, but it has a lot of the same things, some ethnic foods, some nice desserts, some sushi. I mean, it's it's got a lot of, there's a lot in that market, even though it's smaller. Uh, so anyway, l let's move on, though, because one other thing that might, might, probably will impact the attendance of Eternal Weekend in Columbus is the very recent announcement of Eternal Weekend Europe, which happens the weekend before October 2, excuse me, October 21 through 23 in Paris, France. There's, they don't have the three-day structure like we're going to this year. They have Saturday Legacy, Sunday Vintage, just like our uh, North America Eternal Weekend has been. But... Uh, unfortunately, this probably means that nearly all or nearly all of those European players who are traveling to the U.S. for Eternal Weekend will probably stay, quote unquote, local to Europe. Uh, you know, there might be some exceptions. I don't want to put words in anybody's mouth, but the, you would expect that a large contingent of those European players simply won't come over to the States because of yeah. this. But at the same time, it's a great thing for Europe. I wouldn't begrudge Europe having as many large tournaments as they can put together over there. Well, let me just acknowledge that I understand that there are a lot of people who are unhappy about it. It's, <laughs> uh, Rich Shea, Nick Detweiler, a number of people already out there saying how, how incredibly unhappy they are. There are multiple reasons they're unhappy. So I'm not going to endorse their position, but let me at least put out there why they're unhappy. They're unhappy, first of all, because Nick Koss has really done a tremendous job in taking over the Vintage Championship, kind of cradling it and cultivating it into something that's much larger than it ever was at Gen Con. Um, and he deserves a lot of credit for that. And they perceive this to be kind of a slap in the face at him because, as you just said, if the Vintage Championship, there's a Vintage Championship of Europe the next weekend, what incentive do you have if you're a German or you're like a Marco Negra to come here? So that kind of sucks. They're also mm -hmm. unhappy because of the title. I think that's more of a semantic issue. Uh, you know, the Vintage Championship for a while was called the Vintage World Championship, but after I think like 2008 or something, they changed it to just the Vintage Championship. So it hasn't really been that for some time. Mm -hmm. I can nonetheless understand why it might lose kind of its global aura. It, you know, I mean, we've had non-U.S. champions multiple times, Japanese, European. Um, mm -hmm. That said, it's hard to be upset about more big vintage tournaments, right? I mean, that's kind of it's kind of hard to say, well, that's a bad thing, right? And I think that's ultimately where I come down is more big vintage is is good. I understand the bizarre moxen, it's the bizarre moxen, which has always had vintage, but um, still, I. I yeah. Yeah. I mean, what I would be unhappy with is if they ever didn't have an annual vintage. That would not be cool. But if they decide to alter. So if, if there's like a choice between that or just yeah. doing it two places a year, I'm cool with that. You know, I, I think most people will probably continue to perceive the vintage championship in the U.S. as the championship. I mean, it's not like the Asian vintage championship is going to be viewed as like more prestigious than this. So, uh, yeah, I don't I don't see it. I think it's. I understand why people are reacting, but I don't think it's that. I don't think it's. I think it's more upside than down. What about you? I think it's a net positive. I agree with your summation. 
I think it's there is a measurable diminishment in the North American yeah. Eternal Weekend in terms of prestige. I think one of the it, it's demonstrable. I think you cited the fact that we've had many uh, non-American people come over and, and a couple of yeah. winners. I mean, Hiromichi Ito and, and Mark Manigra. I mean, the, the fact yeah. that we have international yeah. winners in this competition lends some some air of legitimacy to it, even though we were not calling it a world championship at those times. I think this is a diminishment of that air to some degree. But at the same time, why should America corner the market on that legitimacy, so to speak? Uh, if this Paris event yeah. draws a similar number of players and maybe it'll be more international just by definition being in Europe, um, you know, maybe maybe there's room for just bigger and better things yeah. in the I mean, vintage community it... internationally. So yeah, I mean, overall, I think it's I think it's a net positive. The vintage community in Europe that has to be a good thing. I mean, that has to be a good thing. This is this is funny. Yeah. So Hiromichi Ito on uh, <laughs> on Facebook posted Eternal Weekend in Paris, maybe dual power nine. However, I can only visit only Columbus. Japanese businessmen cannot rest two weeks. <laughs> I love I love that. I love that. Yeah. <laughs> well, I was that's funny. Yeah, I was going to ask you specifically if yeah. you knew that he was yeah. committed I mean, to coming he, to Columbus or not. That's funny. So no, we're not going to lose but, all of our I mean, international it, audience. It would be sad if I didn't get to see him <laughs> once a year at the Vintage Championship. Fortunately, I got already got to see him this year in Asia. But um, <laughs> right. we're, we're making this. I, I'm I'm guilty yeah. of making this sound like a binary, right? Like there's like the U.S. and then there's Europe and that's it. That's obviously not true. There can be championships, so to speak, uh, in lots of places <laughs> in the world. We, we're up to we're up to potentially three annually now. That's great. Australians are probably sitting thinking, "What the heck, everybody? Come on!" <laughs> so uh, you know, I encourage the, our Aussie friends to go set one up. <clears throat> but yeah, overall, I'm glad this is happening. I kind of would like it if they weren't happening at the same time. That's the issue. I mean, you know, the same time. And maybe that was just an unavoidable right. issue this year. I mean, year, the way that they've set it up, it's perhaps. not really possible to attend both. Uh, but it would be great if you could set up something right. you could. If we could get a month or two between the things, yeah. then no worries, I, I think. I, I just want to say that the concerns that are raised, I think, are real and are worth considering. But I think they can be addressed or will just naturally be addressed. Maybe maybe they just call it the European Vintage Championship and it's solved. I don't know. But, you know. I'm, I'm happy to have two eternal weekends a year. I mean, yeah. I would actually encourage people to go back and listen to our first podcast that dealt with the eternal weekend. So when we, I think a couple, this was a couple of years ago, of course, but when it was first announced that the vintage championship would not yeah. be a Gen Con, you and I spent like a whole better part of a section of an episode speculating as to what that might look like. And we had speculated the possibility that they would do something like that. And it's turned out to be far better than I think we could have even imagined. Yeah. yeah, that's a good point. We yeah, when, before we knew any of the details about the nature of the weekend, we were just airing ideas, and it turned out to be even better than what we could have imagined. Really. Yeah, I think our main concern was if you take it out of something like Gen Con, where you already have a certain level of traffic, does that diminish it? But it turned out to be something yeah. amplified it many fold. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Well, we'll see. We're uh, needless to say, the two of us are very excited this year, and we're gonna be. There's gonna be a whole bunch of players that uh, we know regionally that are gonna be there, and they're excited to make the drive. Uh, hopefully, hopefully the attendance will be great. Now, speaking of tournaments, vintage tournaments, Steve, we would be remiss if we didn't talk about the VSL Play-in tournament, which is which is firmly underway at this time. 
we just finished, what is it, the third yeah. week now of the play-in? The elaborate, multi-dimensional, some have buys, multi-loss, there's still another tournament to be had, VSL play-in tournament. We have four confirmed out of five members who will be in VSL Season 5. Paul Rietzel, Shuhei Nakamura, Brian Kelly, <laughs> and, drumroll please, Steve Manipian. So, congratulations on getting back into the VSL, Steve, through the play-in. Yeah, all the matches have been, there's been a lot of interesting stuff in this play-in tournament. Uh, But there's still a single-limb bracket of, it's eight players, right? Eight players left for single-limb? Yeah, it starts next week. And the winner of that bracket will be the fifth and final spot. So, no one is out of the picture yet. But starting next week, it's elimination matches for all. It's it's partly my my fault, because... Uh, I, I dragged uh, half the VSL into this relegation <laughs> tournament. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I don't know. <laughs> That's an interesting way to put it, but <laughs> the VSL, VSL structure by its nature invites those kind of uh, logjam yeah. record kind of scenarios. So it is what it is. It's hey, but the, it's made for an opportunity for great entertainment and more vintage in the end. So yeah, it's great to be back in and hope. I wonder if that'll cause like a shift in my perspective and what I want to play. I, I don't know yet, but um, it'll be fun. <laughs> yeah, and there's a couple. There's several first timers. Three of the four, Paul, Shuhei, and Brian, are all first timers to the VSL now. So there's some new blood in this next season, guaranteed. Yeah, for sure. And, and they've all brought interesting decks. So we'll we'll, we'll certainly talk yeah, a little bit more. About certainly, that certainly, yeah. But let's move on to the metagame update. Well, our first major topic uh, for this podcast is data. Know how much people love data. Uh, <laughs> so the data. This has been some of the most interesting yep. results I think I've ever seen. I've been paying attention to vintage data as long as it's been called the vintage format. And you know, um, so we'll start. We'll start with the mm-hmm. dailies, then we'll look at the premier event, and then we'll turn to paper. I think that's our plan. Um, so the MTGO dailies yep. are a very interesting source of data. Um, so just so folks know, not all of the dailies are actually reported. Uh, dailies in on Magic Online occur on Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, but not Monday and Tuesday. And on Saturday and Sunday, there are two dailies. And I think most of the time, both dailies fire. At least There's at least three dailies uh, each weekend that fire, but um, only one is reported on Sunday and Saturday. So we, we have about, I don't know how you want to characterize it, maybe like 85 or 90% of the dailies that are reported. <laughs> And we don't actually have a full metagame picture. Yeah. All we have are the decks that made 3-1 and 4-0. So um, it's a performance metric. It's not a metagame presence met- metric. And, mm-hmm. you know, for years I've done metagame breakdowns. But when I say metagame, I'm talking about the top performing decks. That's usually what we're talking about. But now that we actually have more data, we're going to have to be a little bit more careful about that, especially in the context of the events. So turning to the daily, mm-hmm. so folks know, although the restriction of Lodestone Golem took effect in paper, uh, on, I believe, April 8th, uh, that didn't take effect on MTGO Magic Online, I should say, until April 14th. So what we've done is we've 
got all the data from April and May so far. We're in mid-May, um, and so we'll just I'll just break it down. Because here's the data. Uh, in April, there were. We'll start with the four and O deck. Should I start with the four and O decks, or do that overall and then do four? I like starting with the four and O and then getting them broadening. And when you talk about April, are you talking about April, the post-restriction right, April? April? So I'm looking at yeah. uh, April 14th to April 30th. Um, there are. I'll just I'll say this. First of all, there are 60 deck lists that were reported in April post-restriction. 10 four and O deck lists. So I'll, I'll give you the overall numbers, and then we'll give you the specifics here. So there are 10 Forno deck lists, and of those, four were Gush Mentor, three were Workshop Eldrazi deck, two were Bug Agro Control, and one was a Thing in the Ice Agro Control. So of the 10 Forno decks, and I actually, you know, we said this in the last podcast, I think we should give more weight to Forno decks, because Forno decks as a performance measure, is just measurably better than 3-1. And, and the reason the reason behind that, in my opinion, is that... Mm-hmm. Four no deck in a six round Swiss tournament is going to make top eight, so it appeared in a top eight, whereas three and ones are not. And I've in my previous metagame reports going back to like 2004 or whatever, and earlier before that, Bill Stanton, we used to use cutoffs as either 33 or 50 players because we want to have make sure there's a requisite number of Swiss rounds. So if you consider 33 players, that's Swiss six Swiss rounds. So a four no deck is equivalent to a top eight deck, sort of. <laughs> Not perfect, but it's close enough, right? So um, <laughs> interesting, you know, gush decks in this 4-0 category are 50%, 5 out of 10. Shops, though, despite having two restrictions in six months, uh, Shops and Eldrazi, and we're going to talk a lot about that in a little bit, um, put up three of the 10 and then two buck by the same player, though, I should just know. Turning to the overall data, mm-hmm. uh, as I mentioned, there were 60 data, data points. This is truly remarkable. Out of the 60 deck lists, 36 of them were Gush Agro Control or Gush Control. 36. That's a full 60% of the April data points were Gush deck, uh, which is just one of the most remarkable Mm -hmm. achievements I've ever seen in in covering vintage data. Specifically, here's how the Gush decks broke down, and I'll give you the rest of the breakdown. 31 of those 36 were Gush Mentor decks. And the Gush Mentor decks came in so many different flavors and varieties, it's actually worth, like, discussing them if, if that trend held. But it doesn't, as you'll soon find out. In other words, there you've got like uh, Esper versions, you've got Blue Eye Red versions, you've got Vrin Prodigy versions, you've got Sylvan Mentor, four color versions. There's just so many different versions of Gush Mentor. There were only, though, only two Delver decks 31 Gush Mentor and two Delver decks. <laughs> so Delver is basically disappeared. <laughs> yeah. Um, one thing in the ice deck, which as I mentioned before, one countertop deck, which had one mentor, four gushes in the countertop, and then one cobra gush, which is Lotus. Uh, so pretty interesting <laughs> breakdown there. There were twelve Eldrazi shop decks. Eldrazi, I believe there was no shop. There was no Eldrazi. Only Eldrazi decks in April, but I could be wrong. Don't quote me on that. But there were twelve decks I aggregated as, as Eldrazi or shops. Eldrazi or shops. So some were just workshop decks. Some were, so twelve is twelve out of sixty is I believe ten percent. Sorry, twenty percent. Right, twenty percent. No, that's twenty percent of the overall decks then yeah. were shops. So that's a really remarkable achievement, right? That that shops were. I think we said they were like overperforming at like something like thirty-five percent, and now they've dropped post restriction just in April, twenty mm-hmm. percent. Um, there are three blue moon decks. Which has proven this deck, Blue Moon, using Blood Moon, uh, just a bunch of counter magic, a control deck, has, has proven to be pretty resilient in this metagame. Two Dredge decks, one Steel City Vault, one Belcher, two Bug, and one Doomsday. Gosh, Doomsday. Uh, so it's interesting that um, 
Yeah, I mean, it's really interesting that in April, you just had total gush dominance, right? And people were kind of unprecedented mm-hmm. levels. Unprecedented were, levels of performance, dominance. Performance, not just presence. But people are kind of freaking out, right? Like, oh my God, gush is everywhere. Yeah. Well, I think everyone can just take a sigh of relief because I'm, the May data shows some dramatic, and I mean dramatic, changes. Uh, so we'll do the same thing I just did. First of all, in May so far, our May data goes from the beginning of May to May 18th. So we have about the same number of dates involved. Uh, the difference is we have 54 data points for May. Uh, that is decks that went 4.0 or 3.1. And we have 12 no decks. It's interesting that there actually are a lot of, um, there seem to be, um, for whatever reason, more 4-0 decks, but then there are a number of, of uh, dailies where there are no 4-0 decks at all. <laughs> so we have fewer data points, but more 4-0 decks. I don't know how you reconcile that. <laughs> um, yeah. <laughs> it is a little um, bit curious. So starting with the 4-0 decks, the 4-0 decks in May, Bear in mind, remember, the Gush Agro Control decks in April were 50%. Now here's the 12 4-0 deck breakdown. Three Eldrazi or Workshop Aggro, three Gush Mentor, two Dredge, one Oath, one Blue Moon, one Dark Petition Storm, and one Landstill. If that isn't an amazing, diverse vintage metagame, I don't know what is. That's that's awesome. That's a great breakdown. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I, I don't want to just focus too much on 4-0 because it's obviously a small sample size. So let's let's look at all 54 data points. 54 data points, here's the breakdown. Out of 54 decks, there are 15 Gush Agro Control or Control Gush Control. And I'll break that down in a second. 12 Eldrazi, uh, 12 workshop decks. Actually, there's 11 workshop decks, uh, but one. some of those are workshop and Eldrazi. And then there's one just all Eldrazi deck. I kind of just looping in, uh, lumping in this 12 for a second because it's just an artifact aggro deck. <laughs> so 12 workshop slash Eldrazi, yeah. technically 11 workshop slash Eldrazi plus one Eldrazi. Um, again, 15 Gush Aggro, 12 workshop Eldrazi, 10 combo decks. Eight DPS, eight Dark Petition Storm, and two Doomsday. Five Landstill, four Dredge, two Five Color Humans, two Oath, one Belcher, one Bug Agro Control, one Tezzeret and Control Deck, and one Blue Moon. Percentage-wise, just so folks know, remember the Gush Agro Control decks in April were 60% of the field in the dailies. They have now fallen to 27.7%, which is more than half. They've fallen to 27.7%. And the Workshop Eldrazi, Workshop Eldrazi yeah. is 22%. So there's only a five percentage point difference between Shops and Gush Agro Control. And then Combo, if you lump Doomsday in and uh, Dark Pictures and Storm, the 10 combo decks, Storm Combo specifically, because I'm not counting Belcher, the 10 Storm Combo decks constitute 18.5% of the metagame, which is a huge increase from the 4% <laughs> that we saw in our last our Q1 results. Uh, it, I think it was like 3.5% or something. Uh, this is just incredible. So you've got now yeah. top three decks are Gush Agro Control, 27%, 28%, Shops and Eldrazi, 22%, and Combo at 18.5%. That is amazing. I, lo- I love this metagame. I love what this metagame is doing. And Landstill, I mean, <laughs> is, is putting is the, is the fourth best performing deck with, with five copies. And we're going to talk a little bit about that. But a bunch of other decks are just performing decently. I mean, they're making appearances. So that's sweet. Specifically in terms of the breakdown of the, the 54 data points and the 15 Gush Agro Control, there were 13 Gush Mentor. So if you want to just understand what percentage of, of the metagame is Gush Mentor, that falls specifically to 22.4%. So it falls to the same number as, as Workshop and Eldrazi. One thing in the ice and one what I'm called Pyro Grove, which is a guy who plays the deck I played at Vintage Champ last year. Um, so that's that's an <laughs> incredible kind of evening out that we've seen from April to May. Uh, so a lot of the people who are kind of like wetting their, their pants 
Uh, I mean, this is this is one of the most dramatic shifts I've ever seen. Uh, although if there, we did know how dramatic the fall in workshop presence was from February to March. This is far more pronounced. I mean, to go from again 60% Dutch agro to 27%, and specifically, uh, it was like 31 out of 50 over 50% Gush mentor to 22% is a remarkable, remarkable adjustment in the metagame. So that is the daily mm-hmm. results from April to May. Um, I do want to, before we get to the premier events, can we just talk for a second about some of these deck lists? Yeah, let's do it. Let's do it. So the first deck I want to just point attention to, pull attention to, is this really cool workshop aggro deck that Montolio, who everyone knows is kind of a, how do you want to put it, Kevin? He's a, a big fan of workshops. <laughs> 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 well, he's done. Yeah. He's done well with other decks, but I will still, I will, for the foreseeable future, associate him with workshop dominance. Yes. Yeah, people made that mistake. He won a premier event a couple months ago with Oath, and I think people probably anticipated that he was going to be playing shops. Yeah. So it's good to mix things up. Well, here's his deck list. So on yeah. May 15th, he foreowed uh, one of the dailies, and he's actually foreowed, I believe two of the dailies in may with basically the same deck so i just want to just run through it real quickly and then we can discuss because it's fascinating four arcbound ravager one hangerback walker one lodestone golem two metamorph four revoker four thought sought thought not seer four triskelion uh one chalice of the void and then a bunch of artifacts and uh, acceleration four sphere resistance four tangle wire four thorn one trinisphere his mana base is ancient tomb Cavern of Souls, one factory, four shops, strip mine, academy, four weights. And his sideboard is three crucible, four graph diggers cage, two Tormod's crypt, two dismember, two relic of pretendus, two witchbane orb. This looks pretty similar to a lot of the decks that we saw pre-restriction with one big difference. <laughs> yeah, one standout difference. And that's not talking about Lodestone Golem. Yeah, I, I wonder if, if you were to have a card-by-card analysis, I wonder if Thought Not Seer would be the biggest change in terms of single card presence in the format since restriction on the restriction of golem yeah you know one of the things that we were hoping would happen is that restriction of golem would open up new space for decks or at least new cards and it appears to have done that in many ways but this is just the beginning of our investigation of that bob not seer i mean he can't obviously power this off of the shop but he does have ancient tomb he does have a cavern of souls he doesn't have any of the uh eldrazi what's the eldrazi land called again Uh, eldrazi temple or eye of ugin yeah yeah none of that in this list doesn't have those here but He's enjoyed remarkable success with this, which I would consider this a workshop aggro deck, wouldn't you? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. It doesn't have the equipment package that the pre-restriction Ravager Trike decks tended to have. So it has more creatures. The Thought Not the Seer's disruptive capacity, I think, is is pretty remarkable. Yeah, I, I agree. I think that that's probably what players are discovering is that even though it's not a turn one play like Workshop Mox Thought Not Seer, I think players are probably learning that turn one Thorn, turn two Ravager or Revoker, turn three or four Thought Not Seer is still a pretty good point in the tempo of a game to really really heavily disrupt your opponent i mean if they have to respond to your first sphere by playing out moxen and then they have to respond to your second threat by trying to either answer you or force through your game plan by turn three or four when you can reasonably and i probably median play for thought not seer is probably turn three 
um, that's still, I think, prime real estate to be disrupting your opponent with a, a duress type effect like this. I totally agree. Uh, and especially when he comes down, I think it's, uh, it doesn't just duress. It, let's be clear, it exiles. exiles. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It's, pr- it's gone. <laughs> uh, and, and it never comes back. When the Adnan play, they draw a card, but yeah. it's not. And as, you know, one of the things that I think when we reviewed all these Eldrazi cards, we didn't focus too much on them. We did allude to the fact, though, that they dodge the traditional workshop removal yes. almost entirely, yeah. right? A 4-4 non-artifact creature, right. it dodges everything except right. swords to plowshares. Yeah, you can't nature's claim this, you can't uh, shattering spree it, you can't ingot you it. No, no, it, this thing is just tax a, a, a yep. force. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> so the fact that it does replace the card that it took from you when you remove it is only, you right. know, a, a modest, modest benefit, or I should say drawback to the caster, but it's only a modest drawback in the, the modern metagame when right. it's frequently just not going to get removed. But, well, interesting. I'm sure we'll see more developments yeah. on that front. But let me... I, I wonder, Steve, I want to yeah. point one thing out. Cavern of Souls. Cavern of Souls does not seem uh, like an obvious I, or a I sure agree. thing in this deck list. And I, I'd have to I'd have to scour the creature yeah. types here, but there's no common theme really. You've got an Eldrazi, you've got a Beast, <laughs> you've got a, I don't even know what a Triskelion is at the moment. Construct it's, maybe. Construct, you've got yeah. Revoker, which is a yep. horror. I mean, a shapeshifter and metamorph. You're all it over is, the place. It here. is puzzling, and so I just wanted to point out that um, you know there are a, a number of there are certainly a kind of traditional workshop background decks out here. But, but a lot of the workshop decks that are appearing have some number of Eldrazi, and they're very similar ones to the ones that um, that Montolio's been playing, and I was gonna, that was the next deck list I wanted to point out. I didn't want to read the whole deck list, but I wanted to point out one major difference. So, for example, Lexor19, whose multiple appearances in this data set, plays a version that's very similar, except instead of Cavern, he uses, two, he uses four Eldrazi Temple, and it's the creature configuration is almost identical. It's four Ravager, one Karn, one Golem, two Metamorph, four Revoker. It is identical, isn't it? The only yeah, difference one, is exactly, Karn exactly versus Hangerback Walker. Except for Karn over instead Hangerback. He has four yeah. Eldrazi Temple. It, the, the deck list is otherwise identical. So we're seeing some convergence, but still some experimentation and difference here. Yeah. Well, I definitely like Cavern more than Temple. And I think the reason I like Cavern is, is that it just functions as a disruptive element in the face of well 60 percent blue decks but i mean it, it functions as a, an elimination of force of will such that now your opponent is down to no counter spells that matter when they're just running mental missteps yeah. and fluster storms and forces now granted it's not every creature but the thing is when it comes to turn three ish or turn four ish that that creature that you're going to play into a potential mana drain or force of will on that key turn being uncounterable can mean the whole difference no matter what no matter what it is it, it's hard to sort of measure at least at this point, the benefit of uncounterability for, you know, whatever, versus the boost that you get for thought supporting Thought Not Seer. It's just, it's hard to know. Uh, Montolio is firmly lodged in favor of Cavern, yeah, but, understand. you know, what if people run even, like, does that equation change if you run, like, two more Eldrazi, you know? Uh, so... Yeah. I, 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 would, I would wager that the answer is probably yes, but, I mean... <laughs> cavern also goes up in value when you have a consolidation around a creature type too so yeah there's a lot of there's a lot of assumptions that you and i are making there that, that would have to be borne out in testing so one of the deck lists kevin i wanted to point out 
in that vein is another in this data set that, that we I've seen quite a few of. And this configuration is a bit different. It's less of a traditional workshop deck and more of kind of a completely novel design, in fact. So this approach, the mana base is anchored as follows. <laughs> Listen carefully. Four Eldrazi Temple, three Mishra's Workshop, four Ancient Tomb, three Cavern of Souls, Strip Mine, Academy, four Wasteland. So that mana base actually creates a completely different configuration. Listen to this. Four creatures are four Reality Smasher, four Thought Not Seer, one Karn, one Golem, three Metamorph, two Slash Panther, one Worm Coil Engine, and then I have to put in the sorcery, all <laughs> is dust. <laughs> and then there's some interesting, in addition to the sphere <laughs> effects, there's Ankh of Mishra's coercive portals in here. So this deck is, is I've seen quite a few of these. It's a workshop deck, yes. It's an artifact deck, yes. But it's also much heavier on Eldrazi with fully nine Eldrazi spells here, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And just so everyone, you know, for those who don't know, especially if you're a vintage person who doesn't uh, dip your toe outside of vintage very much, All of Dust is a seven mana tribal sorcery Eldrazi. So you do get two mana from Eldrazi Temple to cast All is Dust. Right. And and the effect is you each player sacrifices all colored points he or she controls. So pretty good against mentor tokens, all that nonsense. Planeswalkers, yeah. uh, brutal. Yeah. Uh, and it I guess if you have yeah. you can't cast it off of workshop, but if you have like what two Eldrazi temples, you're almost there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Two Eldrazi temples is four of that seven. It's not that hard. One more land, two mocks, and yeah, it's reasonable. And plus. Of course, all of dust right. is not a turn one or a turn right. two play, right? It's That's a mid-game spell. Yeah. That's a turn four-ish kind of spell. Yeah, yeah. You're 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 starting off with disrupting them. You're playing thorns. You're playing Ankh. You're playing cheaper creatures. And then once you've got the board established and maybe they resolved something, then all is dust. You know, it's weird to call Montolio's deck Workshop Aggro because I've never played this deck, but it looks faster. Well, also Workshop Aggro. Yeah, what's the cheapest creature? <laughs> Slash Panther. <laughs> oh, oh, yeah. <laughs> His, his right. creature base legitimately starts at four mana. Now, Phyrexian Metamorph can be paid for three, but, and but on turn three, you can't copy a creature because right. it's cheaper right. than all the but other these creatures. these creatures are just big. <laughs> they're beasty. Yeah, it's haymakers. Yeah, every one of these creatures is a game ender. <laughs> so, yeah, it's interesting. These. So I think your observation a couple of minutes ago was about we've seen some consolidation but not complete consolidation right these decks are moving in similar directions but there's still a fair bit of variety totally and you see like different areas of emphasis so on the one extreme we've got like montolio who just uses like one eldrazi on the other extreme we've got like these decks that are just much more built around eldrazi and in fact we didn't even mention the most recent 4-0 deck was just eldrazi not even any workshops yeah no shops. Maybe since yeah. I mentioned it, I should actually uh, report what that decklist was. <laughs> Let's pull it up. So what we're talking about is, as of this recording, the most recent daily result from from May 18, uh, where Samich played. Here to the creatures: four Eldrazi Mimic, one Endbringer. <laughs> chalk one up for Kevin. Four Endless One, four Phyrexian Metamorph, two Phyrexian Revoker, four Reality Smasher, and four Thought Not Seers. The disruptive artifacts being the restricted chalice, two null rods, and four thorn of amethyst. Then the mana base, it's it's a more Eldrazi mana base with no shops. It's got four tombs, four caverns, four temples, three eye, two factories, and then five strip slash waste. Yeah. Yeah, this deck is all in Eldrazi. Uh, yep. 
they're playing very much like what the the pre uh, band modern list was you know you've got some vintage things here in the form of null rod and thorn but otherwise it has a lot of a lot a lot a lot of uh, dna with the pre-band modern list definitely it w- and you know my assessment is this deck would not exist if Gollum was unrestricted. So it didn't. I think yeah. it didn't. Right. <laughs> it was it, this right. whole this list was legal for for quite a while before Gollum was restricted and it didn't exist. Yeah, the people joked about it and talked about it, and as soon as Eldrazi broke into Legacy, then there was a lot of conversation at the same time about, ooh, let's play it in Vintage then. But no one really put their money where their mouth was. No one was performing with this deck before now. Right. I think it's going to be interesting to see how these, these Eldrazi decks do in the long run because, you know, to be honest, I haven't had to contend with them yet, but I don't know how I would contend. I mean, and, and, yeah, it's funny to say, but it's <laughs> also, I mean, what what do you do? You can't destroy them with artifact removal. You have to use plows. They, you can't bolt them. You can't, like, sudden shock them. You know, a mentor yeah. is not, mentor tokens are not going to really stop them or rush very effectively. You know? I think it's worth noting, yet you're totally right about all those things and it's hard to deal with in that axis, but it's worth noting that this deck is not as disruptive as a traditional workshop deck. The disruptive elements in this deck are, it's got two revokers, okay, so you can shut off a mox. It's got thought not seers, so you can get that thought seize effect out of your hand. Has the one chalice, two null rods, four thorns, right? You're missing tangle wires, you're missing extra thorns, you're missing, this doesn't even have the one lodestone golem in it. I mean, that's true. I mean, this deck is probably just soft a combo. So that's what I'm getting at is that this deck can get certain hands, opening hands that are really aggressive, fast openers, like, you know, turn yeah. three kind of kills with reality smashers that you just can't keep. In certain matchups, you just look at that hand and say, nope, I got to throw it back. I need a sphere. And this deck will have a harder time mulliganing into a disruptive opener than more traditional shop decks will. So in certain matchups, right. like against shops, this deck is probably a beast and against other shop decks just because you're so much faster and more creatures to the board and your creatures get bigger than theirs too. I mean, thanks to the endless one and your, and your temples and eyes and such. And you also have yeah. some, some incredible inevitability if you can get an eye of Ugin in play and activate it. And that's well, but, awesome. <laughs> but this deck went four Oh, yeah. so, you know, it's, uh, it's a small, yeah. very, very small it's, data point. It but certainly it, has some game. That's no, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, We'll certainly learn more among this whole spectrum of Shop Eldrazi where it kind of shakes out. But right now, I kind of like the midpoint deck or, or the ones that are a little bit lighter on Eldrazi and heavier on the traditional components. Yeah, well, since too. since uh, Landstill was the fourth best performing archetype, I, I just, you know, obviously, Gush Mentor, all the flavors of that are very well known at this point. I mean, you got the Sylvan Mentor is doing really well, and we'll talk a little bit about that in a minute. Uh, but uh, the Landstill decks are just continuing to put up numbers. Uh, you know, we don't have data on mm-hmm. what people brought into these tournaments, but you have to expect that given the performance of this deck, it's probably done very well relative to its presence. You know what I mean? So we do have the premier event data, and we know from the premier yeah. event data that the mentor gush decks were basically in the top eight corresponding to their percentage in the metagame. But um, I, I suspect that these Landstill decks are just really outperforming their presence. So one of them that went 4-0 is Power Gamer 1003, and he is running blue-red, and notably, I'll just run through the deck list, two Dak Faden, three Jace the Mind Sculptor, one Ponder, one Treasure Cruise, Ancestral Dictor Time, two Flusterstorm, four Force, one Bolt, two Mana Drain, three Mental Misstep, one Mind Break Trap, two Remand, one Spell Pierce, three Sudden Shock, 
mm-hmm. one crucible, two engineer explosives, black lotus, ruby, sapphire, four standstill, and then land. Sideboard has, among many other parts, a sulfur elemental. But I like these. I like <laughs> this deck a lot. I, I like landstill a lot. I think landstill is very versatile, very strong. It's done really well in the BSL. Uh, in fact, I think like blue white landstill won the last BSL season. Um, but any thoughts on this kind of approach, Kevin? Well, I'm looking. The first thing I think of when I think of Landstill is it is a heavily, heavily uh, a metagame deck. So you have to metagame properly with Landstill. And I'm looking at the other 3 1 decks in this event. Now, we don't know, based on this data, exactly who Power Gamer beat, but I'm looking at uh, Jeskai Mentor. I'm looking at a Pyro Gush list. I'm looking at a Thought Not Seer Agro Workshop deck. Right. Like we discussed, in fact, it is Montolio. I'm looking at another uh, Jeskai Mentor deck. So the th- one of the things that stood out in that 4-0 Landstill deck was three Sudden Shocks. And I would not be surprised if Power Gamer in this particular daily played against four Mentor but, decks, uh, right? <laughs> it could be, yeah. Well, but at the very least, it, at the very least, they beat probably one of these three-in-one Mentor decks. And I just think it's a good example of a really strong metagame positioning paying off. Yeah. The three and one decks in the in the daily the human porno were a, a mentor, a pyro grow, and Montolio and workshop aggro at three and one. So uh, and sorry, there was a Vryn mentor. Yeah, there was a Vryn mentor. And, yeah. and so it's, it's and certainly another possible deck too. You face a bunch of those decks. Um, but yeah. but there are a bunch of landstill decks in this uh, in these results. There's a bug landstill deck that also has done pretty well as well. So I, I what I think I think there's a lot of look. There's a my sense is that landstill is potentially well positioned in a number of ways. One of the one of the features of landstill is that standstill is going to come down. If you have it all the time before Gush is going to be cast, that's a huge starting advantage, right? I mean, that's just a, yeah. Uh, and yeah, good point. And it's also very hard to counter because even on the draw, you know, mentor decks you can't fluster storm it, they can't misstep it, they can't, you know, the only, the only thing they're going to be able to likely do is either pyroblast or force it. So I think standstill is a pretty good yeah. card in this metagame. Period. That's a good point. It's so well positioned against mentor. It doesn't mean that these landstill decks are necessarily great against Mentor, but I think they can be designed to be pretty effective. I think, yeah. Well, that's why Power Gamer has three main deck Sudden Shocks and Sulfur Elemental in the board. It's pretty clear that they are yeah. uh, prepared for Mentor. Which is totally reasonable. Uh, you know, if that's where you want to, that's where the metagame is, that's where you go. Yep, yep, yep. Now, the one thing about landstill is there has almost never been an accepted or standardized landstill list. Exactly. <laughs> Most other archetypes, you could point to a titular, this is an example of this list. Landstill is not like that. I've talked to people, a number of Magic players have engaged me in conversation about decks to play. And whenever Landstill comes up, I'm always right. I'm always loath to recommend it, especially for a player who's asking for advice on what to play, because it's like, if, if you don't already know that you have a Landstill list in mind, or that you've come up with, you don't, don't try to build one for a metagame you're just speculating on or something i mean you need to know your metagame in order to properly build and play land still and clearly power gamer did in this particular daily totally agree shall we talk about the premiere event then let's do it
So turning to the April premiere event, we have to credit Ryan Everhart and Matthew Murray for putting this together. We'll post the link in our show notes, but uh, it's <laughs> it, this is actually, unfortunately, the smallest event that we've had so far with only 60, 61 players registered, 60 who played. I actually registered in the event, and I started off 2-1, and one and I dropped because I was called to the beach. <laughs> abnormally hot day out here <laughs> uh, for April. Um, but... The metagame breakdown is just as, I mean, it's basically down the line identical to what I said for the daily event. So there were 60 players, and in fact, remember there were 60 uh, April data set, data points, so for dailies, so same number of deck lists in the premiere as there were in the daily. Huh. Um, and the breakdown was 27 gush aggro control decks, um, according to the the people who pulled this data, which is differs from the dailies because there was 31 in the dailies. Um, for a for a total metagame percentage was 45.8 percentage with a win percentage of 50 percent talk more about that in a second shops though there were only four shops both eldrazi and workshop aggro mm. uh, with a win percentage of 55 percent so it's interesting to see shops go from like this really high performance to almost nothing and then spiking back to like 22 percent in, in may and dailies right yeah we'll see how yeah. that, we'll see if that trend continues in the may in your event um the rest of the breakdown was there were eight big blue decks according to their breakdown Four Dread, four Oath, and then they had eight combo. Um, and then there were eight, there were four other decks, uh, like Bugfish, Bugstill, Dark Times. Percentages, though, are really interesting. So Shop decks have a 55% win percentage. The Gush decks have a 50% win percentage. Big Blue decks have a 50% win percentage. Dredge, 50%. Oath, 37%. But Combo, 59%. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I, I want to spend a second talking about that. So the combo de- there weren't a lot of combo decks here, but combo is doing really well right now, Kevin. Mm-hmm. And you know, with the being 18% of the main metagame, I think combo is really positioned well. I think combo is positioned well because when gush decks are really good, gush decks have one particular vulnerability, and that is their mana, right? Like that's why sphere effects are so good against them. Right. Well, right. How good is defense grid combo decks against gush decks right now? I think they're fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. And even where they're weaker, like the Mentor, well, my God, if you're playing a combo deck, is there a better card you want your opponent to play on turn one than Sylvan Library? <laughs> the, absolute, the absolute do nothing for a full turn, right? Yeah. Am I wrong? Well, I, I agree with your assessment on a number of planes. I mean, the, the, dis, the complete diminishment of workshop decks has obviously contributed to combo doing well in this particular time period, this particular event. Now that effect is being a little counteracted in May, so we'll see. But right. uh, but also the shift toward more Eldrazi style in these workshop yeah. and Eldrazi aggro decks, for the reasons I already stated, they have fewer disruptive elements. And I agree completely about defense grid. It's one of the things, when I was preparing to play a couple tournaments recently with Jeskai Mentor, the presence of defense grid in these Dark Petition Storm decks caused me to have to reevaluate my my entire approach to that matchup. It's just if you don't address that particular card, then nothing else you've done it undoes almost everything else you've done. So within reason, I mean, Aegis of the Gods, right, still disrupts them a little right. bit and such. But if if you have Aegis and they have defense grid, the inevitability is totally on their side because you're not going to be able to stop them finding the answer to the Aegis. Uh, I, I completely agree with what you're saying about Aegis, but I think what's important is that, you know, so I, I don't want to overstate. It's not like you when you're playing combo, you want your opponent to go turn one Sylvan Library. But I think Sylvan Library is the kind of card that has more power when you have more turns. And against combo decks, it's just not as potent. 
In particular, though, the life damage is actually a problem. And one yeah. of the trends I've noted, one of, one of the trends I've noted in these DPS decks is they tend, some of them, a lot of these have two tendrils. Hmm. So, like, if you're a Sylvan Mentor deck and you just decide to, like, draw three cards with Sylvan li- Library, you might just lose to tendrils next turn, and there's nothing you can do about it. These Sylvan Mentor decks have, like, one Flusterstorm. They cannot overpower you with counters. I really, really like how Combo's position in this metagame. I think it's going to do very well in skilled hands. I think it's going to do really well at the NYSC next month. I think we're going to see like one or two. I think we're going to see possibly two combo decks in the top eight for the first time in like what years <laughs> ever. <laughs> yeah, it's it's ironic too. I think you might see some of these Eldrazi decks start having to sideboard more spheres. You might see yeah. sphere of resistance in their sideboard. Um, but I think that it seems it seems comical almost to say that because. I, if your environment is 20 or 30% mentor, or gush, I should say, in, in aggregate, and then another 10 to 15% combo, then you're just better off being the, the heavy sphere workshop deck instead of the heavy aggro workshop deck, you know? So I, I agree with you. I think that because of the way that people are reacting in April and May to gush versus shops, that axis, I think that combo has just come out in a much higher position than it had been for years previously, really. And I love it because I think I think combo is really skill intensive. I don't think it's something that can easily dominate the format. Mm-hmm. But but it's it's nice. To, I mean, it's just been absent for so long. We haven't seen dark rituals in vintage do really well in so long. Yeah. So it's cool to see it. I think it's a it's a weak point for mentor. And a weak point for Sylvan Mentor in particular, because the Sylvan Mentor deck is either going to have a lot of mana in Sylvan Library, which is a do-nothing for an entire turn, or it's going to be mana tight and it's going to be get, get busted out by Defense Grid. So Yeah. Well, very interesting results. And as you said, we're going to keep an eye toward the May premiere event, and we'll have another one of these metagame updates hopefully what we'll observe is that things will settle down a little bit into a a bit more of a predictable pattern going forward in may and june i'm voting for chaos (laughs) (laughs) well we've seen chaos in the post chalice environment right it took a month or two for things to settle down there and i think we're seeing a predictable amount of chaos now Uh, i foresee that things will settle down unless we get some other ban and restricted change of some kind and or some kind of haymaker comes out of uh, the next set or block. But we'll see. Shall we move on to the paper results? Let's do it. I'm excited to hear this. Sorry to say that the paper results are simply not as large as the Magic Online results. It's no surprise. Magic Online dailies are a font of data sources. For paper in the April and May time frame, we've got, in terms of total decks, that is top four or eight decks in the time period based on tcdex.net, we've got 52 in April and only 12 in May. So we can't draw quite as many conclusions about the April versus May shift in things as Steve was able to with the Magic Online dailies. But one of the things we're going to bring back is the weighted appearances metric that uh, we came up with for the last big metagame update, and that is weighting a deck's 
relative uh, importance in their results by the number of players in the tournament. And specifically, the metric is 16 players. At 16 players, a deck is weighted at 100%. At 8 players, it'd be weighted at 50%. 32 players, it'd be weighted at 200%. You get the idea. So we're putting a lot more weight in paper on large events. It just so happens that those 12 uh, appearances we heard in May... That included the latest Bazaar of Moxon, which is fully mm-hmm. 66 players. So those oh. event, so the weighted appearances metric has a little bit more weight, so to speak, in May uh, because it had one very large event. So let's talk about those weighted results then. In April, weighted appearances uh, out of 97 and a third weighted appearances, and the third is because of the, the, the weighting math, <clears throat> Mentor had 27. That is 28% of the metagame, because it's almost 100 appearances total. In second place in paper was Oath, with 18. Wow. Wow. In third place, Dark Petition Storm, by itself, with nine, wow. at 9%. That is not combining other combo decks, because later on, Doomsday has 4%. And then in fourth place was Workshops, at 6%. Huh. Incredible. So the top four decks you said uh, percentages are Mentor, Oath, Dark Petition, and Mud. Yeah. Incredible. And as and so as you observed in the in Magic Online, a couple of trends. One is that combo is over not overrepresented, but combo has a great large representation. It's increasing. Yeah. yeah. Because I mentioned Dark Petition at nine, Doomsday at four, so that combines to thirteen, and then there's some. Gush Tendrils decks that add a few percentage points here or there. So it's pushing 20% in paper if you aggregate all the different combo decks. That's that's a serious representation of combo. And the converse, of course, which we've observed, is workshops at only 6%. 6% April. Incredible. And they're 22% in May. And <laughs> Yeah. Well, well, let me keep going. Let me keep going. Okay. So... Let's talk about May. Now, granted, it's basically one large tournament and then one small tournament. But for the Bazaar of Moxon, primarily, the representation is Mentor at 37%. Wow. So it went up. But the other big upswing was in Workshops at 27%. Wow. <laughs> workshops wow. much higher representation thanks to the top eight, uh, the Bazaar of Moxon. And then there's a tie for third place with Belcher, Merfolk, what? and Five Color Humans. That's that's all one ofs in the top eight at Bazaar of Moxon. Mm. And then there was a Dredge deck that made top four in a smaller event. So the thing is, is we're we're putting a lot of weight on, oh, admittedly, a large tournament. 66 players is nice, but it's only one tournament, and it was won by Five Color Humans. So there were three Murf, uh, three mentor decks in the top eight. Not just the top eight. There were three mentor decks in the top four of the Bazaar of Moxon. So we can't we can't draw too many conclusions on May from just one event. One event, yeah. even though it was a nice one, uh, we're just going to have to keep looking. There's just it, simply not enough paper results reported, and you have to understand. Paper and and it was won by the non. It was won by the non-mentor deck. It's kind of important. Yeah. yeah. Well, we can talk a little bit more about that particular uh, development. You have to keep in mind that paper results are delayed by a week, sometimes yeah. two, because TOs have to type things up and send them into the site and such. We don't have the one-day turnaround like we do on Magic Online, so well, we're working with a bit of a, a short time frame to your. One of the biggest discrepancies is, I mean, I mean, the, what you described with Mud is is very similar to what we saw on Magic Online. I mean, it was a very, very low percentage, and now it's surged to a huge percentage again. But but what strikes me as different a difference is the Oath percentage. I mean, Oath. Yeah. Despite winning a um, 
a premiere event a couple months ago. It just it was a very poor performer in the April premiere event and is you know pretty marginal in the daily uh, dailies. And I just think it's I think it's a tribute to the difference between paper and in in Magic Online. I mean the Brian Kelly Oath deck won the whole vintage championship for you know for God's sakes and not to mention and then the, the age shoot. of vintage championship exactly yeah. exactly. So it's almost seventeen. It's eight, almost eighteen percent of the metagame yeah. in your paper data, and it's just not even anything close to that online. I think that's. I think it suggests that Oath is a very, very. I think what I would say is that if people are going to a paper tournament and if they're looking at Magic Online data, they're going to get a very misleading picture of how viable Oath is. And that's something you and I have said over and over again: is that you and can't refer to one metagame when preparing for the other. It's just it's it, you're asking for disaster if you do that. Yeah. <clears throat> So we're seeing a similar, we're seeing some reinforcing trends here, right? The the severe diminishment of workshops immediately following restriction. Yeah. And yeah. then we're seeing a bit of a rebound. So it's it's very similar to what happened after Chalice was restricted, right? Naturally. I mean, like shop dropped to like ten percent, and then it over December it climbed, and then it climbed, and it climbed. Mm-hmm. So and people. You know, it's, yeah, I mean, people put so there's first and second and third order reactions, right? People think yeah. that. You have to walk away from the thing that was just diminished for restriction, and right. they tend to go to the thing that was the obvious yes. predator, or the thing that was the obvious prey. I'm the sorry, prey. that deck, yeah. Gush. Which is why Gush and Combo are both seeing yeah. big uptick. Yeah. Now, and, and I also think then that's compounded in paper with what you said about the the perceived value of Oath as a, a championship winning deck, right? And right. and not and certain lists not as viable on Magic Online means that it's just a, I think it's I think we're going to continue to see Oath with a higher representation in paper for as long I, as people are playing these Orox Salvagers Brian Kelly I, lists. I completely agree, and I think it's so unfortunate that that's not viable on Magic Online because it just completely distorts what the real metagame looks like. And, yeah. You know, real in quotations. We had a whole debate about that in our last podcast, but <laughs> I know, I know. I, I would point out that there are a few people who have taken Kelly Oath to to good finishes in dailies. So it appears that I think only one that I've seen. Yeah, it appears that some people are brave enough to try it and they appear to be either good enough at executing the combo or, or they're getting their some, opponents are or they're getting some concessions, you know, yeah, one way or the I other. Think, I, I think it's probably more just good sportsmanship. Yeah, uh, but there aren't there aren't many. Not many, no. No. <laughs> but we're gonna keep on this we're gonna keep on the paper results, of course. Our next update will have all of May for paper and we'll be able to talk a little bit more. But let's um let's look a little bit specifically at that that bizarre of Moxie result, right? Because it was sixty five players. And the top eight I alluded to a second ago, but let me rehash. The top eight was three mentor, a five color humans an Arayo Shops deck, which is weird, Belcher, Ravager Shops, and Merfolk. Now, that's those two shop decks in the top eight of this event are what's basically amounting to the May rebound in paper. Uh, two right. shop decks in a top eight is, you know, that's good performance for, a, for an archetype. <clears throat> but the top four of this event was the three Mentor decks and the, and the five-color Humans deck. Uh, because yeah. the, the Mentor decks all beat their opponents in the, in the first round of the, the top eight. Let's let's talk about some of these hate bear deck for a second. So let me read off the winning five color deck. Yeah. Four four noble hierarch, four Thalia, four Scab Clan Berserker, mm-hmm. three Dark Confidant, three Mantis Rider. That's right, Mantis Rider. <laughs> two Grand Abolisher, two Mayor of Averbrook, two Reflector Mage, three Containment Priest, three Kasali Pride Mage, three Abrupt Decay, Time Walk Ancestral, Lotus, five Moxen, four Cavern, four Gemstone Mine, four City of Brass. 
four mana confluence. Boy, you gotta love that those rainbow mana base. <laughs> one str- one strip mine, one wasteland. Sideboard, abolisher, containment priest, abrupt decay, reflector mage, two wasteland, three surgical extraction, three stony silence, and three is it static caster. <laughs> what an interesting deck list. Where do you even want to begin with that, Kevin? <sighs> this deck has so much going on, so much worth talking about. So let's talk about okay. In my opinion. This deck hinges. It could not exist without Thalia. This is yes. a Thalia deck through yes. through. You can take any of these other cards, and they might have a similar function in a, in a different card, right? Thalia yep. is the is probably the irreplaceable thing in this list. Yeah, I I completely agree with that. I mean, I think ever since Thalia was printed, we well, a couple maybe in 2012, I wrote a, a, one of these articles on aggro and vintage, and focused around hate bears. Mm-hmm. And you know, I, I think some time ago I played it. Well, I actually played one of these hate bears decks in in the uh, Steel City tournament, Power Nine tournament. You may remember that, Kevin. Um, you know, five color hate bears, but the, they just continue to churn out better and better, better and better hate bears. With Mana Confluence and Cavern of Souls in the last couple of years, now you have a mana base that is entirely five color that can play any of the hate bears ever printed in the entire card pool, <laughs> and that's what you've got here, right? I mean, we've got Thalia, we've got and Scab Clan Berserker. I think I so certainly Thalia anchors it, but in my opinion, Scab Clan Berserker is one of the most interesting pieces yeah. of technology here. Yeah, now, it's, why, worth, why don't you tell, it's worth noting. You said you can play any creature, but this is a human's deck. Every one of these creatures is a human. Fair enough. In support of Cavern of Souls, but that's not that's not of critical importance, I think. Let yes, let's talk about this standout card in Scab Clan Berserker. Now, for those of you who don't know, there's been a lot of um, talk about this card since this event, but it's one RR creature human berserker, of course. Haste, renowned one, and here's the kicker. Whenever opponent casts a non-creature spell, any non-creature spell, if Scab Clan Berserker is renowned, Scab Clan Berserker deals two damage to that player. It's two-two. Has haste. It's two-two. Comes down and hits for two right away. Turns into a three-three, and it becomes this amplified pyrostatic pillar, which is yep. it's not just pyrostatic pillar. That's the thing. It triggers on gush. It triggers on force of will and Jace the mind sculptor and everything. We reviewed this card in our set Magic Origin set review, didn't we? Or did we not? Maybe. <laughs> I gotta be honest. I, maybe. I don't remember either. I really don't. Um, but but what is it that's so like overpowering about this card right now? It's just is it so easy to get renowned? Is that part of it? I think I think it's a combination of factors. Yeah, I think that yeah. the fact that it has haste and this deck is slightly yeah. better at I mean slightly faster at casting a three mana creature than Mentor is, right? Just at face yeah. value, because it has the four noble hierarchs plus four moxen plus black lotus. So it's slightly faster at casting this three mana creature. And the creature has haste. So even if they have mentor in play, you can just cast this and swing in. Because they it's basically gush or no for them in terms of yeah. if they're gonna get a profitable exchange out of that. Because if you could trade this for a mentor, that's a good thing too. So of it course. pairs up yeah. well against mentor in that respect. And then if it hits, which it frequently does, then it's just, I mean, that's just game-breaking against a Gush deck. Well, this card is so much better than, let me just be clear, this card is so much better than Pyrostatic Pillar. Because it hits Gush, it hits Force, it hits Tendrils, it hits cards that aren't even within Pyrostatic Pillar's suite. It hits a ton of Workshop cards that Pyrostatic Pillar fly to. Yeah. Um, So I think this card matches up well against Mentor specifically. Right. And right. it's just also, it's kind of a way to, 
Because this human's deck is going to be the sort of deck that chips in for early damage in most. And has haste. Yeah. And this has haste, but I mean, you're you're playing a you're playing a, a one drop. This deck has, I haven't pointed out that this deck has full five mocks, and so you're maximizing your opportunity for a turn one two power or two mana creature, right? So Thalia, Dark Confidant, yeah. uh, Priest, Pride Mage, they're, they're all coming down in turn one a lot of the time. And then on turn two, you're maximizing your capability of playing either a three drop Scab Clan Berserker with haste or a Mantis Rider with haste. So all your three drops have haste. And they're all getting pumped by a Mayor of Everbrook if that was your turn one drop. So this thing can frequently come down as a 3-3, becoming a 4-4. The deck is fast at dealing damage early on turns 1, 2, and 3. And then if this thing gets renowned, it's just that much harder for your opponent to dig out of that hole. They can't overwhelm you with mentors if they're getting shocked for every spell that creates a monk. The The math just doesn't work out. And meanwhile, right, exactly. you're not letting off the gas either. You're just, playing just, another creature the next turn or two. Right. I mean, the relationship between spells and mentor is particularly important because yeah. the way that you power mentor is by cycling through spells. Yeah. But this this card like is laughable against Cataxian Probe. Like, sure, take four. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, and I think this card um, is also good against shops, but not as good as it is against the other blue decks. Against shops, it's also a way, a way, if you can get make it happen. If you can get it into play and hit them, <laughs> which is saying something, right? That's not a sure thing. But if you can get this renown trigger, then workshop decks are frequently trying to overwhelm you by playing repeated spells. And this is a no-mana source of damage once it's once it's renowned. And that's a very important metric too. Is you could just sit there and tap down the tangle wires, or, or you know, play defensively and blocking their creatures. But every time yeah. they try and play something to get over on you, they're taking that two damage. It can add up. It can make all the difference. Yeah. So you're, you, I'm, I'm glad that you point out this is really focused around humans. I mean, that's why it has cards like Reflector Mage, right? Yeah, but, yeah. and a Reflector Mage is cool too because it's super good against Mentor, right? Right. A mentor. If, Bounce against a mentor is is frequently just foolish. I mean, it's not addressing the monks, but it's also they're just going to replay it and keep getting the yeah. benefit. A reflector mage has just huge game against a lot of the tactical things you're trying to do with creatures in vintage. It's it's amazing against oath. It's amazing against a lot of the large workshop creatures, especially if they paid two to four life to cast the thing in the first place, thanks to ancient tomb and your scab clan berserker. Right. Uh, it's and this again. This is such a fast deck. This deck is deceptively well, fast at dealing out damage. So bouncing a creature and just getting that little bit of tempo damage can result in tons, tons of virtual damage and actual damage in combat. Well, we've also talked about how good Defense Grid is, but Grand Abolisher is ver- is like even better in some respects. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know, it's it's it's, it's city crazy. city of solitude, right? It, yeah. Even. Even worse. <laughs> it's, it's even, it's, I mean, it, it's pretty darn close to City of Solitude. I'd have to compare them word for word to see if there's a significant difference. But it shuts off spells and activated abilities. <laughs> abilities. And that, I mean, that works. You see it in the finals of the Bazaar of Moxon, where the humans player has uh, Grand Abolisher in play, and the mentor player plays a Svensei's Divining Top and doesn't activate it on his turn. He doesn't appreciate the fact yeah. that the abolisher yeah. turns off even since he's divining top on the human player's turn, and that that was a, players, a, players have locked themselves into a play mentally, yeah. not adjusting to the situation. Yeah. So the card is you're right. It's powerful and it's cheap and it's efficient. I mean, uh, this deck is filled with power, cheap, efficient creatures. Yeah. You know. No, it's so true. I mean, even with defense grid out, like you could play a big delve spell, just pay three more. Yeah. But this card, this you, you literally have to do everything on your turn. Yeah. 
like which is the antithesis of the Brian Kelly decks. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Now, so this deck has a couple of weak points though. So there's a reason why this this deck has not already been dominating in vintage. One of them is the mana base is entirely non-basic lands. You know, there's no basics, <laughs> so you're vulnerable to your opponent's wastelands. Not even dual lands. It's yeah, there's all... not even... And it has fully eight painful lands and then another four gemstone mines. So if your opponent strip mines, say, your Cavern of Souls, then if you want to keep casting spells, you're going to be taking your own damage and or removing counters from gemstone mine. Unless you're fortunate enough to have the Hierarch or an on-color Moxin in play. Now, every Mox in this deck is on-color, but only for certain spells. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, and the other thing that this deck has against it is that there are certain there are certain combinations of the bears that are not disruptive to other certain strategies in vintage, right? You can fan open a hand that has Dark Confidant, Mayor of Averbrook, uh, a Containment Priest, and a... What's the one you were just saying... Uh, Grand Abolisher. You fan open that hand of four creatures, which are all perfectly good creatures. Not one of those stands in the way of Dark Petition Storm. True. You can fan open a hand that has a Noble Hierarch and a Dark Confidant and a Mantis Rider and a Reflector Mage, and you just got you got nothing to say against DPS. Well, <laughs> so I mean, there's certain combinations yeah. that don't help you disrupt your opponent, and that's part of the skill of playing a deck like this is understanding the matchup. It's a meta game deck, yeah. just like Lancel. You know, I think the larger lesson here... So, one lesson you could take away is, whoa, five-color humans is really, really good. That's one lesson. I think the larger lesson is that in the post-restriction of Gollum metagame, that Hate Bears deck's strategies, broadly speaking, can be viable. I think that's the more important takeaway. That this deck was designed for this tournament. But Paul Reitzel, Reitzel rather, went 3-0 and in the prelim event with mono-white Hate Bears. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, that was anchored by an entirely different set of creatures. Really, entirely different. I mean, aside from Thalia, I don't think there's any overlap here. <laughs> yeah. he, he ran Spear of the Labyrinth is as we saw, one of the most powerful cards there to just completely shut down Brian Kelly. Yeah. Um, and, you know, so if you're in a big gush metagame, that's that's some place you want to be, begin thinking about going. Uh, that's going to stop a lot of shenanigans. Yeah, so, you know, I think that the point is that in the, po- the restriction of Gollum has, I think, created space, right, for these decks, whereas Gollum is just such a problem. The, the the Eldrazi may be big and fast and, and furious, but <laughs> but they're not preventing you from playing spells in the same way. Yeah. So I think I think that these Hate Bears decks are really effective. I was going back and looking at, at some of my writings years ago, like what happened in the metagame to open up space for this? You know, it, it's it's been really a series of printings. It's it's you've got you know, Graft Digger's Cage was a big one. Uh, you know, Containment Priest has been even bigger in many respects. Oh, yeah. so, so many things have happened that allow allow these hate bears decks to, to emerge. But it wasn't until Gollum was restricted that, that we've actually been able to see them come out of their shell I think, because they were just so suppressed. I think there's one other thing that had a tertiary effect, and that is how bad creature removal is against Monastery Mentor. Yeah. Mentor, Mentor has put this really bizarre pressure, really specific, narrow pressure on what creature removal is relevant in Vintage. Yeah. And as such, people have been only playing those kind of narrow silvery bullet type things. Well, I, I tend to think the plow is effective against Mentor, but uh, uh, I'm as a I mentor player, I, I do not fear <laughs> swords to plow shares. That's probably because when I use plow, I always have just as much counter magic as my opponent. But you, you make a you make a good point. I mean, even fighting over it, it doesn't do a lot. But, but, but you're yeah. right about Plow being a very good 
strategy. But let, let me just point out the three sudden shocks that were in that Landstill list. And, and the Sulphur Elemental. And Sulphur <laughs> Elemental, right, and the rise of Supreme Verdicts. Now, so you might think, yes. hey, what, yes. how is this five-color fish deck advantaged against the Wrath of God, right? Well, the answer is disruption, right? Yep. It's it's Thalia, it's Scab Clan Berserker, it's it's Spirit of Labyrinth. It's Spirit of Labyrinth. Yep. It's it's disrupting your ability to get to and cast that card, and with some waste and strip thrown in, of course. That it's it's just putting pressure on you to not be able to use that form. And there's a reason why four mana rats are not common in vintage. Is that the I, good the, the good disruptive decks make it hard to cast them. And this right. deck also this deck is filled with creatures. It has so many <laughs> creatures that you can easily yeah. <laughs> you can easily pressure someone without without dumping your whole hand. You get a hierarch, you get a Thalia, you put a dark confidant down, maybe one other, and now you're drawing cards, you've slowed them down, you're still swinging for five or six a turn. I mean, you don't right. have to overcommit to a wrath with this deck. You can easily watch your board get wrathed away on turn four or five, and the next turn play two more creatures and be right back in business if you're if you're playing smart. No, that's 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 I think that's an excellent point. But it all but it also goes back to the point of you know um, that that the disruption you use is is may seem narrow, but it's also I think uh, very potent. Yeah. So 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 like containment priest isn't going to stop you from playing a Yogmoth will but it is going or a demonic tutor but it is going to stop you from tinkering it is going to stop you from oh Oath. uh, yeah. it's going to stop it, it's going to stop dredge so it's it's like almost like zero to a hundred it's like either fantastic or kind of like just a bear <laughs> <laughs> yeah this deck has some just bears in it right a lot of times dark confidant is just a bear a lot of times mayor of everbrook is going to be a little underwhelming depending on the situation but there's a lot of synergy going on, right? The yeah. two of them combined are hitting yeah. for for four damage, but then you could flip the mayor, and then you start getting yeah. wolves. I mean, well, there's a lot of synergy going on with these creatures, a lot of interaction across them. One of, some of the creatures I really like from Paul Rietzel's list that we didn't see in, in this list were Aethersworn Canonist, mm-hmm. which is very effective against Mentor. Yeah. Because I mean, the whole point of Gush is that, well, not the whole point, but <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I may have something to say about that. <laughs> but, but one of the clear advantages of Gush is that you you want to play spells with the mana that you used to return, you know, to, to pay for Gush. Mm-hmm. And so, you know... There's an implication Canada, of multiple spells per turn. Exactly. There's a, and, and that's... that clearly puts a wrench in that i also like lean and arbiter i think that can be incredibly i mean that's one of the most turn one dis- like that's almost like a trinosphere on turn one in the fact like if you've got yeah. a big fetch land hand that's really different that really slows you down I, I am i am slightly surprised not to see arbiter in this list especially since this is a no fetch land list a mana base I right mean. right but, but as you said, it's all humans. Yeah, <laughs> uh, I could think you could make a case for shaving a couple of numbers uh, here or there, maybe to get arbiters in this list if you felt like. Yeah. It. But I'm not criticizing the construction of this list at all. It's just you're pointing out that there's lots of powerful options. Exactly. That's totally true. Exactly. That, that's the key point. You could construct this deck closer to the way Paul Rietzel did. Maybe it's two or three colors, but the point is you don't have to be five colors, and you don't have to be all humans either. Cavern of Souls right. is majorly good upside here, but it's yeah. not the it's not the only story. So right. I mean, you can, and if you have a second cavern, then you know. <laughs> yeah. 
That's a good point, too. Love that deck list. And, and I love Paul Rietzel's deck list, too. And I, I think we're going to see more of this kind of thing over time. Now that Gollum is... You know, it's been so long since Gollum's been the format, yeah. right? I mean, I, I can't remember World of Wake was printed in 2009 or 2010, uh, but it's been a long time. <laughs> yep, yep. I say we move on to some listener feedback. Let's do it. You had a question you found from Storm Storm Magus about blue players. Yeah. Well, well there was a, there was a bunch of <laughs> there was a bunch of feedback. I'll just say, you know, the feed, we got a lot of feedback on our last podcast and you could categorize some of the feedback into a couple couple categories. One of the of the main pieces of feedback that we got was that the restriction of Gollum, even though it may have looked justifiable based upon the data, was was wrong because blue players or whoever the metagame didn't sufficiently adjust to workshops. That is, they had the capacity to adjust, but they were just somehow stubborn in deciding to continue to play like three missteps, like fluster, three or four missteps, fluster storms, pyroblast, all that stuff, instead of actually loading up remain deck cards. And I had like two levels of response to that. The first response I would say is that that may not be true. It may be the case that people wanted to play more main deck stuff, but couldn't because of other metagame forces. So to assume that people are being stubborn implies a it implies a decision that people may not have been able to make. Um, and 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 the, the larger point though is even if it was true that people were stubborn and workshops continue to dominate, I still think the DCI as a policymaker would have been justified in making an intervention. And I came up with all kinds of real world examples of that. You know, it's like. You could think about a sports context or even the economy and, you know, thinking about, well, you know, you, you do something to try and incentivize behavior, like you change a rule in baseball or you, you lower interest rates if you're the Federal Reserve or, you know, you more aggressively uh, enforce antitrust if you're the FTC. But if people don't behave, if you expect them to behave, um, that doesn't mean you can just go, well, I, you know, throw your hands up in the air and give up. Like <laughs> you still have responsibility to try and promote competitiveness, com- promote uh, competitive fairness and diversity and, and intervene, right? It's like if you're the Federal Reserve, and I said, I've used this example, and you lower interest rates and businesses don't invest and the economy doesn't grow uh, and it, things appear like they're only going to get worse or you're on the verge of another Great Depression, you don't just go, well, we lowered interest rates and people didn't do anything, right? That would be totally irresponsible. So I, I don't think that argument is very persuasive at all. And I also don't think people were being stubborn. I think people had multiple things they had to combat, and they couldn't just be like, okay, I'm just going to load up for shops one matchup, right, in a metagame where you're more likely to face non-shop decks than shop decks. So so I, I just don't, I didn't find that very persuasive. But there was a second bit of feedback, category of feedback that we got that came up over and over again, and it was this. It was, yes, the data in February for shops looked pretty bad. In other words, shops look very dominant. But if you look a month later, things lightened up. Things got better. Maybe if the DCI had just done some trend forecasting, we wouldn't have needed to do anything. And this is a very important point. In my opinion, you sh- it's people get confused about this. I don't think you should do restrictions for dominance based upon one month or two months or three months. In my opinion, you have to look at data over time. Now, in this particular case, I think we had with like the four months of data, we had enough data to assume that like Gollum was persistently a problem. You know, four is the minimum I would want. I really want like a good six months of data 
Um, so you can see how things occur, really give the metagame dynamics enough time to play out. But but it is a fair point. I mean, it's true that they made their, restri- their decision to restrict like early March, right, or mid-March, before we got a really a full picture. And so I think that's a fair criticism, but I think it's a fair criticism to say things were may have changed and they but there but the honest truth is that how do you forecast how do you make trend forecasts for metagame data? It's not really possible. I mean economists can't even do it very well for for the economy. If you if you were to go back and look at economic predictions by economists in terms of like let's say GDP growth per year or even per quarter, it's all over the place and far more wrong than right. So, you know, I think the whole idea of like the DCI trying to do trend forecasting is a fool's errand and not really possible. It's not a fair critique, but it is a fair critique to say, you know, the DCI should give it as much time as they possibly can and not and not do anything knee-jerk reaction. And I think waiting six months was probably the bare minimum that I would have waited. But anyway, I just wanted to put those out there. Those are sort of the main criticisms that emerged of the DCI based upon the data we presented. Mm-hmm. Do you have any thoughts on either one of those points? Uh, no, I think your summary is pretty good. Uh, I personally would have waited a little bit longer, and I don't mean to say that I would have predicted what happened at, you know immediately after they made their choice, right? Because later in the data set, we saw workshops have a, a reduced presence, but um, right. I'm not saying I would have predicted that. But as I said during that show, I, I right. felt like the the results were they were on the edge, but on the lower right. side of the cusp that I thought was necessary to take action. I've always been yeah. a little bit more laissez-faire as it pertains to the <laughs> the band restrict list anyway. So, uh, that, yeah, that's been my position on a few things in the past. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, you know, it was it was a it was a tough call. Yeah, but but you know, I don't want to reiterate all those arguments that that we made last time. But I do think the DCI has a tough job and. Mm-hmm. You know, they're they they're th- this is important. Restriction is always going to make some people unhappy, no matter what. And so I think when you realize that, it means you you should really tread lightly. And yeah. you know, I said this I said this in a post, but whenever any restriction happens, there should never it should never be like yes, finally it's restricted. In vintage, it should be like at best that was painful but necessary. <laughs> you know, it's like a, a a bad pill that you have to take, right? Yeah. And it's like. It, it, it there should never be a celebration of restriction because <laughs> it's it's a it's an awful but necessary thing from time to time but it has to be really proven to be necessary in my opinion and i think i think the restrictions you know i'm on record as saying i would not have done what they did i probably would not have restricted chalice i probably at the moment they restricted chalice i would have restricted Gollum instead and i would have chalice unrestricted right now yeah um, but i probably would not have restricted both but what's done is done, and and I like the metagame that's emerging right now. Yeah, well, we have to go forward. We can't go back. <laughs> <laughs> well, not easily, anyway. <laughs> <laughs> we have another question. This one came in from a Michigan area player, friend of mine, Charlie Krug. And I'm going to summarize a little bit because he sent us a, 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 a fairly lengthy description here. But he says... Um, One topic that he thinks is almost completely overlooked when it comes to results and ethics online is the difference between playing online and playing in paper as it pertains to outside help. Ah, interesting. Charlie says, um, I love watching streams, 
and more people commenting, the better. However, when I run up against Brassman or Rich Shea, for example, I know that they have anywhere from 10 to 50 or <laughs> in chat helping. Sometimes Rich asks for the deck designers uh, for how to sideboard and waits for Brian Kelly to answer. This can really <laughs> So uh, I think Charlie's yeah. on to something here, and I, I, I don't think that this issue has been... I don't think it has been very thoroughly, uh, you know, combated in the broader vintage community. And I know that vintage is kind of late to the party as it pertains to playing Magic Online and streamers and all this jazz. But I will point out that there's something that feels a little bit fundamentally wrong that is not in the spirit of Magic for there to be just this open season on outside assistance when you play online. Uh, Steve, you're you're well known for consulting uh, your your own and other uh, reference material when playing Duke yeah. Day, for example. <laughs> I mean, th- this is something that's it, there, there's no secret, right? This is not something that's being done under the table or anything. It's being openly done and celebrated. And whether or not uh, Wizards of the Coast cares or would even stop this if they could, I still feel like there is something. Uh, we're on the wrong side of an ethical dilemma here as a community. Interesting. So you see, you see this kind of, you see this as a more serious issue. Well, I see that it fundamentally compromises the one-on-one nature of the game, and I'm not talking about multiplayer games, of course. Right. Uh, uh, you know, one person is supposed to be playing against one person, but as Charlie alludes in his message, yeah. one of those people might have multiple minds at work and being attentive to the play that's going on on their side. Well, I'm not exactly sure where to begin. I, I think you raise an interesting ethical question, or, and our listener has raised an interesting ethical question. Uh, but I think the, the place that I'd like to start is a topic that we've talked about many times before, and it's the difference between magic online and paper magic. <laughs> and I see this less in terms of ethics and more in terms of the differences between the platforms. So clearly in paper magic, anything like that would be considered outside assistance and blatantly prohibited, mm-hmm. clearly prohibited, right? Yeah. Yet we, this is not just like the only difference between paper and magic online. It would be one thing if, if like paper and magic online were identical in every respect, <laughs> except, except this. Yeah. That would, that would be incredibly incongruous. I see this as part of a larger set of differences, a more fundamental set of differences, including the clock, including the capacity to search online for deck lists, including the, for example, one of the things that Rich Shea has when he plays that I think is really fascinating, he has bots set up in his Twitch stream that tell him when he plays an opponent what his opponent's rating is and what they played recently on Magic Online. Mm-hmm. So he knows likely what their archetype is going to be before they even play. So it's like a super scout, right? It's a, it's a bot that's a super scout. Right. Um, so, and then I can go, like you said, I can go into my reference materials, my own gush book or my doomsday articles and find and pull gush materials. Like I can look up like a doomsday, a corner case doomsday pile. And, and more than that, I mean, you know, I'm now, it's kind of like a meme, me and notepad. <laughs> I can do that in, in online and you can't really, it's not as feasible, clearly not as feasible to do that uh, in paper. Right. So, so I think, th- I think this is not, I, I, I think my way of approaching this issue is less of looking at it specifically as an ethical issue and more as a constellation of differences or an expression or a specific example of a larger difference between magic online and paper. And that larger difference being being the capacity to utilize reference materials more broadly and and draw upon other resources in a different way, like time yeah. and clock management. 
but but I do understand why someone would see it from an ethical perspective. Do you think that there's an ethical problem there, Kevin? The short you answer said- is, yeah, I do think there's an ethical problem there. I do think that... Uh, I do think that there are some things that are... There are skills in magic that have to do with pre-tournament preparation, as is yeah. widely accepted, right? Which includes deck selection and metagaming and sideboarding and all this jazz. One of those skills also is understanding people. You know, yeah. pros are very good at this. They're gonna have, they're gonna know people. They're gonna know teams. They're gonna know proclivities. They're gonna know who won the pro tour with what, et cetera. What kind of yeah. deck do they prefer? There are people who are widely known for preferring one type of deck, et cetera, et cetera. I do think that those things are all valid skills pre-event. But as soon as you start the event, I don't think that you should be able to consult other <laughs> humans about lines of play. <laughs> you can consult your well, memory. You can consult your sideboard you know, within legality. But I don't <laughs> think that talking to another human should be allowed in a 1v1 match. I do think you know, that fundamentally compromises the nature of the competition. As you were sort of laying that out, it kind of reminds me of the conversation we had again in our last podcast about what is vintage, right? <laughs> yeah, I the agree. ideal ideal nature of vintage. And I said that I, I don't think there's one thing that we call vintage. There's different expressions. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there's like proxy expressions. There are sanctioned expressions. There's magic online. They're different. And and I think you're kind of setting up an ideal here that, that may or may not exist. And um, you know, it's kind of like, in, on the one hand, you can kind of see it like, whoa, this is like, who wants to be a millionaire when Rich Shea is phoning a friend and that friend is Brian Kelly, right? Like, <laughs> yeah. that doesn't, it's, it's like, well, why don't I get that lifeline? That does seem to be kind of like a fundamental asymmetric unfairness. Um, but then there's, you know, but, but I have difficulty differentiating that kind of resource from being able to consult a, say, table in one of my Doomsday articles. Like, to me, or, or if you're someone, you know, whatever, you know, that to me is of the same type, not of a kind. Now, here's where that might be slightly different. I think there's a, there is such a thing as cognitive overload, right? That people can process information at a certain level of speed. Uh, and I think one of the real things that tournaments test and real-life magic tests mm-hmm. and consecutive tournaments test is endurance. I get, people get tired. I've gotten tired. Mm-hmm. In the last round of the VSL, I was going ex- excessively slow in the last game because I was just exhausted, wiped out, and needed to make sure I didn't make a mistake. Yeah. And so the capacity to just phone someone isn't just about tapping their knowledge. It's about relieving my exhaustion in a <laughs> sense, right? I mean, it's like saying, it's about sort of like, I, I would be able to do this if I wasn't tired, if I hadn't been playing 50 mi- minutes of consecutive magic, mm-hmm. but I just need a fresh brain to be able to cr- attack this. So that's a different thing than saying, can I utilize your experience? That's just, it's, to me, that to me is a more of a concern. That's a more fundamental unfairness. Okay. That that, that I think is a different kind of unfairness than outside resources. You know, it's funny. You mentioned your doomsday uh, reference material. I think that's not a good example. It, it is a valid example. It's not a great example because you wrote that material. Yeah. <laughs> that, but, now, but, you, hold on. You, yeah. You charge money for that material, don't you? <laughs> what, what if Rich Shea had paid you money for that material and his opponent had not? And, and now, then uses, it, uses that material? Yeah, and now he's yeah. getting an advantage brought about by money that his <laughs> opponent doesn't have. 
Like, oh, now you can make a so- case that money has other economic yeah. influences on magic to begin with. I'm not trying to say that it doesn't. I'm just saying that now you're bringing in all kinds. There's materialistic. There's as yeah. you, There's well, there's physical. Uh, you know. Does it make a difference if I? Does it make a difference if I'm friends with Rich and I gave it to him? Uh, like just a little, hypothetically. A little bit of yeah, a difference. I mean, yeah. Uh, I mean, or or what if? You know, what if someone else wrote it but they gave it to me? Yeah. You know what I mean? It's like. Now, paper, paper sure. magic already has that element of you can get better based on who you know, because we know that teams succeed right. at the professional level and at all levels. Uh, so that element is, exists yeah. in paper. Yeah. But again, it doesn't exist in real time. Yeah. <laughs> With the exception of actual team events, which are out of scope for this discussion, yeah. you don't get to le- – if, you know, if, you're, if you're LSV, you don't get to lean over to your professional teammate during the match and say, hey, what would you do here? And well, that- it, yeah. It is interesting. It is interesting because – let me just add one more layer to this. We're in this era of, of, of basically streaming. We're in the streaming era for Magic now. Yeah. It's full bloom. Oh yeah, and and this and it's and it's and when I streaming, I don't just mean like Sundays at a paper tournament. I mean, <laughs> I, I mean pe- people stream real life, you know, Magic Online all the time with hundreds of people in the chat potentially at the time, you know, like LSV or whoever. So are there ethical? If you were in, I don't know what Magic Wizards rule on this is, but let's say there's like a Magic Online Championship, which there is, right? And you're streaming it. You're probably not allowed to stream it, but Supposing, like, you're in some meaningful event, like a PPPTQ. Oh, the vintage yeah. premiere event, for example. Yeah, yeah, and you're streaming. Is that a violation of the service agreement? I don't think it is. I could be wrong, but I don't think it is. Like, if someone gives you advice, uh, it's just, it's it's hard to regulate at this point. It's yeah. almost it's unenforceable. So, is a rule that's is, it's completely unenforceable, is that... Is that a good rule? I would tend to say no. I mean, look at prohibition in the United States. You know, <laughs> uh, I, I think that rules are entirely unenforceable. It may be an ethical issue, but I don't see it as a magic rules violation. But I, I think you raise an important question. I mean, there are fundamental unfairnesses throughout yeah. magic. There are unfairnesses of experience. There's unfairnesses of knowledge, mm-hmm. of networks. Uh, one way of looking Economics. at it is just economics right exactly it's built into the very fabric of the game uh economics i i i I don't see this as larger than many of the other fundamental unfairnesses (laughs) well uh, it is exceedingly difficult to quantify those of course sure Uh, sure. i don't claim to have an answer to that i've there's a funny analogy that that brings me back to this question and that is i I frequently read a content about pro tour team testing There's been been an increase in documentation about those uh, interest uh, interest stories during the Pro Tour and and articles before and after about the the process of a pro team testing. It's been very common for large teams to just sequester themselves in some nearby, near-to-the-tournament location for a week or more beforehand and just do power testing. You know, they're throwing deck after deck against each other. But when it's a pro tour, they're also drafting and preparing for the limited portion, right? right? Sometimes that happens online. And there are pictures and anecdotes and many stories about teams gathered around a laptop in their pre-tournament testing phase where one person is signed in and they're participating in this moto draft and the whole team is watching and analyzing the draft as a learning exercise, right? It has value to them. Can you imagine 
being the person on the other end of that draft. Oh God! And you're and you're paired against a pro, right? You're paired against TV yeah. or LSV or anybody. But yeah, and that's I, intimidating, and that's that's you know that's a disadvantageous enough. But there's actually a room of legitimately four to ten other <laughs> platinum pros on the other line informing <laughs> the plays of your opponent. Well, and you're supposed to be, and you paid your however many tickets to draft. Yeah, and you know you're just you're supposed to be there for a, a you know a, a friendly competitive match of of one person's mind against another. It sounds grossly unfair, but I <laughs> I don't it's it's not it's not additive, and I don't think it's additive in the sense that it may be suggested. So it's not like LSV plus PV plus, you know I, well. I mean like in other words in the, because because it's it consensus for so for example. I think the unfairness begins by getting paired against LSV. Oh, <laughs> so, so that's the the larger part of it. <laughs> and then, and then when you have but to, that's un- un- but that is an unfairness of sorts that you acknowledge and sign up for going into yeah. the event. That is part and parcel with having entered. Playing against a get- room of pros is not. So, does it make a difference if player know players? entering these events according to your logic would make a difference if they're aware of this possibility it would make a difference but no one does and there's no mechanism for it so it's out of scope <laughs> <laughs> i don't know that it, this, 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 the answer is yes but that doesn't help the conversation i think okay <laughs> I, I guess so there is the there's the ethical argument there's the unfairness argument but then you brought up enforceability right Enforceability is a completely viable angle to analyze this from, and I agree with you that it is mostly unenforceable, except there are multiple highly profile, well-documented, even celebrated examples of this practice. There are photos on multiple Magic Article sites talking and demonstrating and pointing to this practice, not as this was the point of this practice, but this is part of our preparation. Or, in the case of some streamers, this is just every day for them. This is like, hey, what do you guys think I should do here, right? That's documented. It's online. You can go watch the replay. You could go watch a Rich Shea ask people for help. So from that sense, it is not unenforceable. We're documenting this kind of thing all the time. (sighs) Yeah, I mean, (laughs) I guess it's truly not totally unenforceable. Yeah, I don't mean to say we we clearly can't catch every example, but there are some high-profile ones that are, by definition, documented. Yeah, that's true. That's true. (laughs) It's not totally unenforceable, but it it is unenforceable. It's not totally unenforceable, but it is un- unenforceable to do the one that you just talked about, the Pro Tour thing. Well, no. Because it's because, not being streamed. It's not being streamed. But they're, and, but they're writing about it and photographing the okay. practice after the fact. Okay. And so, they are but, documenting but, it. But what if Rich Shade just invited some people to his house, while, which he does, oh, yeah. while he streams that one, and it, but he didn't stream it. Oh, That's no, I, I agree. The majority yeah. are unenforceable. I agree. Yeah. Tough, I, t- tough issue. I... I I think if I was Watsy, this would be the sort of thing that I would say, yeah, what are you going to do? I mean, I would I would make every effort to draw attention away from this practice and every opportunity because, because the best case scenario for them is that they enforce it on certain key high-profile examples, which would be the worst ones for them to enforce it on from their perspective, right? Yeah, I mean, that you don't want to like 
drop the hammer on LSV or whatever for something like Ricochet. Yeah, right, or your streamers, right. Yeah, they're they're actively marketing your product. I Exactly. I, I think this is the kind of problem that just ultimately where ethics bends to reality, you know what I mean? Yeah. So, I mean, it's an interesting question, but... Yeah, I, I definitely want to hear from our listeners on this one. I know that some of you, because Charlie wrote in, I know that some of you are thinking about this kind of thing already. Uh, do you think it's... They, the Wizards should even try to enforce something about this? Do you think it's unavoidable? And do you think it's actually, you know, that, that there is actually an ethical problem here, or, or am I making a mountain out of a molehill? Thank you for listening to episode 53 of So Many Insane Plays. You can tweet us at Many Insane Plays or email us at So Many Insane Plays Podcast at gmail.com. As always, and until next time, we wish you many insane plays. Not safe protection game! <laughs> <laughs>